Welcome to the Inside Joe. We have an amazing episode for you. Uh, today, we're going to have double the fun with two guests. First, we're going to talk to Britton about his epic bike trip from the Czech Republic all the way to Greece, how a couple of Swedes saved the day, and of course, scapular winging. Um, then we're going to talk to Ahmed about what it's like to be a Palestinian American in Chicago, his first rap name and why he had to change it, and his time living in Dubai. This episode is brought to you by Nuber, the newest craze in share writing. Before we get started with our conversation with Britton, we're going to get to know him a little bit better with some quick, fun questions in a segment I like to call Dash Probe. Dash Probe. First question here, Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? Backstreet Boys. Any reason why? Oh, I thought it was just kind of one-word answer. It's Dash Probe style. But, uh... Uh, family. It was a family choice. The shoddy family, you know, car. I, I was nine years old at the time. I listened to what the family listened to. All right, let's get to the next one. <laughs> Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes, extra syrup, extra butter. Like it. Mm. Superman or Batman? Mm, Spider-Man? Nope. Mm. Okay. All right. Let's go Superman. The guy can fly and he has a weakness, which I think is good. Living room or bedroom? <laughs> Interesting question. Yeah. Living room uh, every time. I also just, yeah. Living room. Living room. <laughs> That's for the parents. Uh, <laughs> Netflix or YouTube? YouTube. Better suggested next playlist. Uh, I can go down that hole for hours. Toilet paper over or under? Can you repeat the question? Toilet paper. Do you put it over or under? Oh, interesting. Mm. Hmm. Um, well, I'm uh, over. I suppose. That's the first time I've ever been asked that question, which is probably why it's part of the Dash Probe. It is. And you've just been probed. Dash Probe. All right. This is a great time to thank our loyal sponsor, Nuber. It's the newest craze in share writing. Can't afford the surge prices of Lyft or Uber? Well, Nuber may be the right fit for you. At nearly half the price, Nuber will have a brand new driver Anywhere from the age of 16 to 82, come pick you up and take you to where you need to be. These are brand new drivers, likely driving for the first time. They barely touched a steering wheel. They need to put in their practice hours and you need to pay less. Now just put in promo code Jesus Take the Wheel and the number four and get 10% off your first ride. Nuber, brand new drivers. Half the price. We're going to get a little bit deeper. Mm. Special questions. Let's get deep. Let's get deep. (laughs) Britton, what makes you cringe? When I'm asked over under with toilet paper. um... So, Britton, what do you bring most to a friendship? Oh, that's a good question. Um, The most that I bring to a friendship is... I love to play nighttime frisbee. Okay. When are you most yourself? It's a really good question. I like that. Um, maybe I shouldn't comment on your question every oh, time. Oh, you could do that. No, it is. It, I've asked this question to other people before, and I think it's a really good way to get to know somebody. I think any time that I am just outside doing something active, such as playing nighttime frisbee, mm-hmm. like I think there's a direct correlation between my overall happiness and my time outside. So you catch me outside on a sunny day, like that is my best. 
I think we're figuring out that uh, Britain is basically just a golden retriever <laughs> in human form. But, I would uh, play fetch for hours. I, yeah, no doubt. What type of person angers you the most? Like you just do not like that type of person. Man, people that are like super uptight and just super, I don't know. Life doesn't have to be that hard. You know, it's like some people can make life very difficult. If you can just go about your day and realize that I am happy, I am healthy, I am relatively wealthy living in the United States, most of us are. And some people just can't take that. You know, they want more, they want to make things complicated. So I just think, yeah, be simple, enjoy. You know, we, we teased a little bit earlier that you had this long bike ride um, from Prague to, uh, where was it? To Athens, Greece. Um, but before we get there, so you're self-described as California born, Minnesota raised, and Iowa educated. Maybe we should take those three parts and say what I'm most proud of and what I'm least proud of. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so let's just go California born. I think it, it represents a big part of my uh, personality, a little bit laid back, chilled out. Mm -hmm. um, Iowa educated. What does that mean? What does that tell you, Joe? You like cornfields. That's, that's true. You know a lot about them. I like, I, well, I did work at a produce and corn stand for two summers. So uh, <laughs> I can pick out a good uh, era sweet corn without... Uh, opening it, that's like the worst thing you can do. If you go to a supermarket and you're ripping open yeah. all of the husks of corn and looking at them, like they're going to have to throw all those away. A matter of choosing the best ear of corn without peeling off the husk. Joe, do you know the difference between the ear of corn and the husk? Yeah, one's bigger. <laughs> the husk is on the outside of the corn. So what you do is you run your thumb in between the ridges of the lines of corn. When you eat a corn of cob, you know that there's the lines of the corn. So you run your thumb up the ridge, and if you can feel that there's missing kernels of corn, it's not a healthy ear of corn. Mm -hmm. So anybody that goes in the supermarket and is ripping open the husks, they don't know a good ear of corn. And then after that, you became an IT consultant. That's true. Yeah, I think there's a lot that can be learned from, well, from your jobs. What did you like? What did you not like? And I quickly learned that an IT consultant was terrible and not for me. So, what is an IT consultant? Well, that is a broad term for being, uh, I was very good at control C, control V. I, I had a pretty serious injury from my desk job. So from my left hand being on the keyboard and my right hand being on the mouse and constantly clicking around, yeah. I had scapular winging that occurred on my right shoulder oh, for blade. Real? Yeah. So if anybody wants to see something disgusting, Google scapular winging, click on the images page, and you're going to see some crazy things that happen to your shoulder blade. And that happened to me from an office job. So I realized that wasn't for me. I didn't like the whole idea of being injured from clicking on a mouse. I'm like, I'm 24 years old. I am sitting in this desk job. I went to play tennis the next day and I literally couldn't do like an overhand serve. And I was like, this is pathetic. I can't play yeah. tennis because of my desk job. This is not sustainable. Yeah. So what'd you do? Uh, pretty quickly thereafter, I quit. I mean, I, I worked the job for a total of two years. After probably six months to a year, I realized it wasn't for me. And fortunately, I had a coworker who told me, that he lived in Thailand for a while. And I was like, dude, what, what did you do in Thailand? How could you live there? He told me he taught English and I learned more. So uh, I ended up uh, moving to Europe, uh, to Prague in the Czech Republic, and I taught English there. So how does one just go from injuring himself in the office, uh, doing an IT job, and then saying, you know what? I wanna go to Europe 
uh, not just on vacation, but to live there, what, what did you have to do? So, I mean, the main thing that the biggest surprise to me was, I remember the first conversation with my friend, my coworker who told me that he taught in Thailand. And I was like, dude, you do not speak Thai. You are not a teacher. That does not make any sense to me. And he told me, you don't have to be a teacher. You don't need to speak the language. That was like my biggest fear because I don't speak any foreign languages. I'm very much the typical American in that right. sense. Uh, so what I had to do was learn how to teach. So I just did some research online. I moved over to Prague. I took a four-week class to learn how to teach English. And then I just got going right away. So yeah, about four years ago, just kind of jumped on a plane. I'd never left the United States before. Well, really in my life. I went to a resort in Mexico. Does that count? Joe? No, not at all. It was America. Yeah. Is Cancun technically part of Me uh, America? If you're in the resort, yeah. Yeah. The resort area is like an embassy. It, they were all <laughs> Americans, Canadians, and a few Germans. And I was like, why did yeah. you come all the way from Germany for this? But regardless, I'd never really left the United States uh, till I got a one-way ticket over to Prague mm -hmm. and uh, started teaching. I'm guessing you loved it there. You had, I know they're known for beer. Let me hit you with a stat, Joe. Yeah, give me a stat. If you like beer and you like castles... Mm -hmm. You like the Czech Republic. I actually really do like castles. Really? Why? Um, I'm a romantic at heart, Britain. <laughs> but anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Number one beer drinking country in the world. Number one most uh, castles per square mile of any country in the world. So you lived there for a year, you said? or About a year and a half. A year yeah. and a half. Mm -hmm. And then I know you went on a bike ride. Mm -hmm. not, just a, not just a joy ride with your brother. But you went for like a three-month bike ride, right? Just kind of started going south and kept going for three months. Um, no, it was, it was a, it was a larger plan thing, but my brother and I, we wanted to do this big trip together and we wanted to go South because we started in October. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't want to go towards Sweden. Yeah. We wanted to head towards either pretty much Italy or Greece, somewhere South in Europe. From there, it was the idea of like, what is the point of this trip beyond riding bikes? Yeah. And at the time, 2016, late 2016, there was the whole refugee crisis where, you know, thousands of people from Africa and the Middle East were riding boats over to Greece and Italy for asylum. So we decided to bike to Greece to work in a refugee camp. So overall, it took about three months. I mean, it was a crazy adventure. Yeah, three months on a bicycle. My crotch is still sore. Yeah, I didn't ask about that. But uh, <laughs> on your journey with your brother, I'm sure, obviously, you were thinking about, like, this would probably be a good bonding experience, I'm guessing. Were you guys close before? Did this trip make you a lot closer? My brother's seven years older than me. So when I was 11 years old, my brother left the house to go to college and kind of start that whole adult journey, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I'd say at age, like, 22, that's kind of when you, in a way, at least we became, we were peers as opposed to he's the super older brother, I'm the younger brother, right. whatever. So it was the first time that we really bonded in that way. I mean, you spend three months together with anybody, right. you're going to learn a lot about them. I hadn't spent more than maybe five hours at a time with him in years. So we did not have cell phone service. We shared a tent. We could not leave each other's hip, more or less, like more than a hundred yards, like yelling distance, mm -hmm. pretty much. We couldn't be separated or else we'd be lost. One of us had the tent. One of us had the food. We really depended on each other for these three months. Yeah. W were there any like key moments like in that journey where you felt like this was totally worth it? Or do you kind of feel like this was a good idea, but it wasn't exactly what I thought it would be? It was highs and lows, no yeah. doubt. So we started on the trip and like 
the second day, my brother had some knee problems mm-hmm. that occurred where he had to stop and take the train onto our next destination where we were going to stop for a few days just to rest and kind of recollect ourselves. So there were a few different points in the trip where we really had to identify, like, what's our goal here? What are we trying to do? I'd say the lowest point was right when we got to the coast of Croatia, the Adriatic coast, one of the most beautiful cities That's in the world. That's uh, where Game of Thrones is filmed, isn't it? So Dubrovnik, yes. Exactly Adriatic what coast. I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dubrovnik, so we were just a bit north of there in Rijeka, and it was like one of the lowest points in the trip. Um, his bike broke. We were just like kind of being right. catty and at each other. But like it's just funny how when at the lowest of lows, something can happen to pick you back up. Uh, we went to a bike shop to get his bike repaired at the same time as that when we were like bitching at each other and just not getting along. These two dudes walk past with big bags on their bikes. It's pretty clear when somebody is going on a long distance bike trip because they're carrying everything, your whole everything, life. everything yeah. your whole life. Yeah. They have like a loaf of bread and bananas on top of their bicycle. Like that's not a casual ride. Right. So it's like, are you going south? We're going south. And it ended up being these two guys from Sweden who are like the most positive dudes ever. They saved maybe our whole trip, maybe our brotherly relationship yeah. for that matter. Uh, yeah, we rode with them for the next 10 days. My brother and I had been complaining a lot about hills this whole time. Uphills sucked. Downhills were fun. But even on the downhills, you're like, this just means I have to go back uphill at right, some point. Right. So not even appreciating the good parts of this. These guys rode bikes with three gears. Three gears meaning it is not easy to go uphill on these things. My brother and I went around the Alps. Mm -hmm. These guys went up and over the Alps. They literally could not ride their bicycles up the Alps. They pushed them, and they rode them down the backside. So when we met these guys, we're like, holy shit. We are the biggest bitches in the world. Well, they must have huge calves. They're Swedes. They're tough motherfuckers, man. (laughs) I don't know. Beyond that, they didn't even have a tent. They did not have a tent. They had army-style sleeping bags. Yeah. Where... They're in snowy mountains in the Alps, and they would just shut themselves inside of these sleeping bags. Yeah. And there you go. That's your night. So do you feel like your experience with the Swedes kind of changed your mentality when you came back to the States as far as, like, toughening up or being okay with certain things? Or All about positivity. I mean, that's it. Yeah. These guys, like, they were um, – their bike trip was from Sweden to Africa. They rode just like – well, with ferries, they rode south to Tunisia. And they were raising money for, um, I don't know, preserving the Baltic Sea or something yeah. like this. Um, now, they were had, like, an Instagram account. And, th- like, there was images of them just, like, in the middle of the Alps with all the snow. And they were, like, doing belly flops into the snow, which was just incredible. Because if my brother and I had been in the situation in not this good time. Right. Like, Ugh, snow, this sucks, whatever. But these guys were, like, having the time of their life. So when you went through this whole trip and you finally got to Athens... Were you just kind of, I would just think you guys would be super exhausted at this point. You guys want to go home or just chill? Like, what, what did you guys want to do at that point? So I'd been living in, in Europe for a year and a half at this point and sharing a tent with my brother for three months. One of the biggest things that I learned is like, if you share a tent with somebody that snores, it's a big problem. Yeah. That man can snore. So, uh, yeah, I was ready to come back to, to the U.S. at that point. My brother, on the other hand, had met a woman in Greece, and they continued traveling oh. around the world. I know. There's a love story yeah. that evolved from, like, a stinky bike trip sharing a tent. Yeah. Wow. So he kept going. 
He kept going. He went from a refugee camp that we um, volunteered at for three weeks to Izmir, Turkey for a few weeks. Then with his woman, he went over to Thailand and then came back to the U.S. So he just did the whole around the world thing. How many countries did you guys bike through? It was about 10 countries in total, I mm -hmm. believe. Definitely the highlight was Croatia. Yeah. I mean, just biking along the coast. If anybody has ever driven like the Pacific Coast Highway on the west of the U.S., like there's a road that follows the west coast of Croatia along the Adriatic Sea that's just absolutely incredible. And the thing is, in the summertime, it's like packed with bike riders and cars and tourists. But we were down there in like November where still decent weather, 50s, whatever, but it we were alone we yeah. were absolutely alone my brother and i and the two swedes just like going down mountains on our bikes like hands in the air having the time of our lives did you have any moment where you guys were kind of scared for you know not for your life but were you guys ever scared during that whole trip the sketchiest part about the whole trip was definitely sleeping mm-hmm uh, we just had a tent and some sleeping bags, and we did not really uh, line up camping spaces. So uh, our method was wild camping, where we would take one main road, and then we would take a side road, and then we would find a side road from that side road, and then ideally we would find a forest where we could just set up our tent oh, wow. and nobody would find us. Yeah. And this was in late October, November, where the sun goes down at like 4.35 o'clock mm -hmm. in Central Europe. So every day at about 4 o'clock, we'd have to start wondering slash worrying, yeah. where the hell are we going to sleep tonight? Mm -hmm. Do you guys have time to go to bars or restaurants? Like, Are you having fun in that sense? Or is the, the enjoyment coming from the biking? Most of the... It's one of those things where you can really enjoy it afterwards. This mm -hmm. was the one time in my life where I kept... A daily journal where every oh, cool. night or every couple nights I would uh, just write down generally what had happened through the day. And so now I can go back and see October 22nd, 2016. This is what happened three years ago exactly. And it's yeah. just so cool to reminisce on that. Now, we had many nights where we were camping and we'd have a fire and like a bottle of wine or whatever, and that was fun. But we were also taking breaks during the trip just to kind of rest up and like stop in major cities. So uh, one uh, memory was like we got to Budapest and just got wasted, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was a good way to just kind of – and then we hit the Turkish baths. That, I've heard good things about Which this. was shortly after my brother had injured his knee, so we're like, we just need to make it to the Turkish right, baths. Right. If we make it there, it will solve everything. Yeah. And actually, the Swedes saved everything. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the turkey. So, so uh, it's, I take it the you have like, it sounds like two moments that you really kind of look back on that you enjoyed Croatia and then the Swedes. Was that like the, the two moments that you kind of cherish the most? There's one other moment I would say. So, there we took two significant stops during the bike trip. Mm -hmm. One was at a Czech winery, mm -hmm. a vineyard in the Czech Republic. Um, and, like, this sounds amazing. You spend a week volunteering at a vineyard. We're going to be getting a bunch of free wine, whatever. Turns out if you have one jackass running a vineyard, it can ruin the whole experience. The next thing was we took a two-week break in Montenegro where there was a group. Um, it was work away where essentially you work for five or six hours a day and then you get your food and your lodging paid for mm -hmm. so we'd lined up ahead of time with this workaway group in montenegro where they were converting an old olive mill into a hostel uh that was definitely a major highlight just really cool dude sounds super cool too 
like the location. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was in like this old Roman city called uh, Bar, mm-hmm. uh, Starry Bar, Montenegro, and like they're they're crushing it. Like we yeah. helped convert this old olive mill into a hostel, and now it's like a really successful business. Oh, wow. We built the pergola. Uh, my brother's a talented carpenter. I'm a talented carpenter's assistant, and um, yeah, I mean it's it's cool to see. I keep up with their Instagram, and they still have that pergola. Like there's a bunch of grapevines and hop vines grown on it, and it's. Now known as the Shoddy Pergola, and that's something that oh, really? <laughs> hopefully will stand forever. And uh, yeah, we helped to build. So, is this a trip that you would recommend for people that are listening to this? Would you recommend doing this? And if you do, do you have any tips? If you're going on a trip with one other person, get two solo tents. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, the biggest piece is time. If you have the time to move relatively slowly, like going on a bicycle, you can carry so much weight mm-hmm. so easily. Um, and you can camp pretty much anywhere. Because that's what I, was, I always, you know, I hear about people, you know, riding their bikes and traveling, carrying all that stuff with you. What do you really need to bring? You need to bring a tent, some food, money, anything else? Or? I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I, I'd say one other thing that really saved us, I actually brought my laptop. Okay. Which was, it's an old laptop, but yeah. I had uh, seasons two, three, and four of The Office saved on the laptop. <laughs> And so literally Christmas night, we were in Italy on this beautiful coast, and we we didn't really have anything to do. The sun goes down at 5 o'clock. We were in a pretty exposed spot, so we couldn't make a fire. And so my brother and I were laying in this small little tent watching all of the Christmas episodes of The Office. (laughs) That sounds actually pretty cool. It was in Italy. It was amazing. It's one of those things, like a very unique Christmas. We woke up the next morning, ate some oatmeal, and got riding again. But, yeah, you don't need much. You just need some simple bikes. You don't need anything fancy. Um, yeah, a tent, some sleeping bags. Yeah. And along the way, the best part about a bike is you're going to cover at least probably 40, 50 miles every day. You're going to go through a few cities. You can pick up food every day. Yeah. You are just absolute freedom. That's awesome, man. I think anyone listening to this, and myself included, that's something that I'm not going to do. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's I didn't so, sell you on it? No, no. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of those things that, like, the moment you had with your brother, I think we found another – memorable moment there because i mean christmas in italy and you have nothing and you have the office like, right that, that's a moment there you say christmas in italy and this is just not what you imagine what I mean. you think christmas <laughs> in italy you're like oh my god you're in rome you've got all this giant christmas yeah, yeah. tree like no we were trying to hide <laughs> christmas nights so that nobody found us in our little tent watching the office this is not your typical christmas in italy the, the bike trip itself absolutely do it if you're thinking about it europe's really easy I don't know. There's a bunch of routes you can do. It was awesome. And you're thinking about doing this again? Aren't you going on another trip or something? Yeah. So this time it won't be on a bicycle. It'll be walking. So a bit of a more well-known trail. It's the Appalachian Trail, um, the east coast of the U.S., from Georgia to Maine. Mm -hmm. The whole trail, it's like over 2,000 miles. It takes like six months to do. Mm -hmm. And I have a job, so I can't uh, do the whole thing in one go. But I'll be taking this next month off to hike, to literally walk through half of Virginia. Yeah. I will be sacrificing thousands of dollars <laughs> from my job to walk across half of Virginia. But again, um, it's just kind of an adventure I need to do. Are you going alone or? I'll be going with one other person, uh, my girlfriend, Jesse. Um, so you can tell from the previous interview that spending yeah. three months alone with one person yeah. had its highs and lows and led to some growth. So right. one month. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Here we go. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that I mean, that's going to really 
have that relationship grow for sure. Let's hope. Yeah. Well, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for sharing, man. I think a lot of interesting stuff there. So after the interview with Britain, uh, the mics were still on and we kind of talked for another minute or two. Um, it ended up being uh, pretty interesting. So I decided to keep it in here. Um, so here it is. That I think that bike trip is a big reason why I got this job. Honestly. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like so many people, so many people wonder like, if I take three months off to go on this bike trip, will I ever be able to get a job again? Right, right. It's you like, hippie. Yeah. It's like, fuck that. Do what you like to do. And if your future employer does not appreciate that, like, you're in the wrong job. Well, it, it also sounds like you were just smart about, like, if you're going to, you have a dream and you want to do something, yeah, you're not going in there blankly. I don't think you can make life decisions based on a resume. Like, how's this going to look on my resume? You do yeah. what you enjoy in life totally. and just trust that, like, your interests are going to align with something that makes sense for you in your lifestyle and and what's the point you know if you, you just take whatever job that pays the most or like the safest route yeah there's no point to that yeah absolutely not so i mean i have friends when i left my first job as an it consultant mm -hmm. they're like you're gonna quit this relatively high paying job to go make a thousand dollars a month in mm -hmm. europe like that's the dumbest thing i've ever heard but those same people would complain with me every single night <laughs> about the job. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I hate this yeah. job. Yeah. 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 But when I went to leave the job, they're like, you're an idiot based on the money, whatever. So I don't know. You just have to follow your goals. And I, mean, I think the key is just being smart about it. Like you could, you could dream big and do big things as long as you're smart about it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Before we transition to Ahmed and play dash probe, uh, it's a great time to talk again about our sponsor, Nuber. Nuber, again, is the newest craze in share riding. It's at half the price of Lyft or Uber. Um, and basically, new drivers are, are going to be the ones taking you from point A to point B. Um, I do feel the need to address some concerns about safety. Um, we've had a lot of bloggers um, write about their concerns. I mean, sure, the drivers have not been you know, driving for years. Uh, none of them are going to become NASCAR drivers. Um, but they've been driving for, for days. Um, and I really, how hard is it to, to drive a car? Um, and at half the price. I mean, the prices are so good. Um, some, things are, some things are worth the risk. Newber, brand new drivers, half the price. Probe. Okay, Dash Probe with Ahmed. Yep. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes all goddamn day. Just mad butter, mad syrup, side of corned beef hash. I'm sorry, Fuck I gotta it. interject here. Couldn't you do the same thing with waffles? Yeah, but it's just like it takes a lot of work and there are crevices in the waffles and it just you gotta do stuff. Comedy or horror? Comedy all goddamn day. Fred Armisen, Portlandio. What's up? You just shout out Fred Armisen? <laughs> I shouted out Fred Armisen. I uh, hope Carrie Brownstein fucking hears this podcast. Kind of angry about it. <laughs> I'm fucking mad angry, dude. Living room or bedroom? Living room. Any reason? Yeah. Uh, TV. The TV is in the living room, and I live in this old Chicago 2 flat yeah. where the bedrooms are like 9 by 9. So you can watch Portlandia. I mean, the bedroom is literally a place to sleep. The living room is like the place of fun. Well, some people would say the other way around. Yeah. 
<laughs> I've been married six and a half years. Ninjas or pirates? Ninjas. Okay. Netflix or YouTube? Netflix all goddamn day. Netflix. Just full shows, good shows, Hassan Minaj, Netflix. Toilet paper. Over or under? Neither. What? Bidet. Bidet? We have one of those bidet setups in our bathroom. In Arabic culture, cleansing yourself after shitting is really important. And so having some sort of setup, a bidet or some hose that comes out of your water right by the toilet is super important. So we have a fucking hose that comes out of the water source in our bathroom. So I don't even have to use that much toilet paper. And so over under does not even matter. Bidets all day. Wash your ass, guys. What makes you cringe? Um, Television shows like The Office. Uh, Hot take. Yeah, Veep. Wait. Just awkward situations for humans to be in in front of me on television okay. make me cringe. Gotcha, but if it's in person? If are it, you... I don't know. There's not a lot that's in person that makes, it, makes me cringe. I think it's because I'm surrounded by nice, non-cringy people. What do you bring most to a friendship? Um... What do I bring most to a friend? I bring cheese. Like literally cheese? Or like I literally cheesy? bring cheese, actual cheese to a friendship because I like cheese and I feel like I need to share cheese with people. I just want to note that he's uh, never offered cheese to me. Never, <laughs> never. But that's a developing friendship. So in the near future, I can offer some cheese. Um, yeah. What else do I bring to a friendship? I bring um, laughs, hopefully. That's something that I try to do. Um, I hope that my friends think I'm at least funny in some way and that I can brighten up their day with some bullshit. When are you most yourself? Uh, with my wife or with my very close friends. What type of person angers you the most? I don't get angry. I don't think there's any type of person. But maybe if I had to decide right now the type of person that angers me the most, I would say someone who is indecisive. That's pretty annoying. Yeah. You either know what you want or you don't. All right. So now if you could pronounce your name correctly, because I, I, I know we've talked about this and a lot of people pronounce your name wrong. Yeah. Uh, so my first name is Ahmed. It's a really strong ha sound. Yeah. Ahmed. Ahmed. And my last name is Al-Ashqar. Okay. Yeah. So. And it's not Ahmed. It's not Ahmed. Um, it's Ahmed. Ahmed. Like if you're really, really cold and you went, ah. <laughs> yeah. or, you t or you took a really good swig from some Coca-Cola yeah, and you went, ah. So, so it's, something it's like a refreshing sound. It's a refreshing sound. Ah. It's a refreshing name. So you are a third culture kid, mm -hmm. is what, as you call it. And you're fond of hummus uh -huh. and Italian beef. Yep, both. Um, so shortly after your birth... Um, at the start of Persian Gulf War, yep. your family was forced to flee Kuwait. Yep. And then after a few years in Jordan, uh, you moved to Chicago, mm -hmm. where you were immersed in public school, rap music, and yep. Nickelodeon. And yep. that's that's precisely. all from your own words. That is precisely who I am. It's 
Can you kind of just go over that a little bit? So yeah, yeah. so I am uh, the son of Palestinian immigrants. So there was a mass exodus of Palestinians out of Palestine in 1948, which was the formation of Israel. And so my family left um, and we moved to wherever my pops at the time thought was the right place to move to, which was at the time Kuwait. So my father was educated and Kuwait, which was, you know, another and kind of bubbling part of the Middle East because of like oil reserves and stuff. He found a job in Kuwait as an accountant for an oil firm. Shortly before the Gulf War that the first Bush was known for, I was born. And so I don't remember any goddamn thing about Kuwait. I I only know that I was born there, and that is reflected in my passport, but otherwise I have no actual connection to Kuwait. So I was born in the Gulf of the Middle East in Kuwait, um, and then we left when I was two years old. I currently have a son who's three and a half, and he was born in New York, lived in Dubai, and has no idea what any of those places mean. So. I don't know what the hell Kuwait is. It was just a place that my parents tell me I was born in. So, and, and again, you self-describe yourself as a Palestinian from the south side of Chicago yep. or Chicagoan from the West Bank of Palestine. The Palestinian community is so deeply rooted in the south side of Chicago that you can be both. Mm-hmm. So I have both identities. I'm as much a Sox fan as I am a fan of where I actually come from and the foods you know, where I come from and the culture that I grew up in. And so my household was very traditional. Um, I'm Palestinian through and through in the food that I eat in the upbringing that I hope to reflect onto my children and all of that stuff. But I'm still like Chicago as hell at the same time. Being a Chicagoan, yeah. uh, but you're, you're Palestinian. So does yeah. that, do you all- see how that kind of reflects onto you yeah a 100 all the time um i feel like i'm you know being middle eastern being muslim and being in modern day america i feel like that's all at the spotlight and so i have to deal with that all the time do you and always so, feel like you have to represent like being normal, uh, always quote, always quote, normal yeah and w- which is super weird because i for a while i worked in new york city in a charter network where i mostly worked with brown and black students of color who went to this charter school and a lot of times what we would hear as a complaint from these students was that in class in all of these predominantly white institutions they were expected to represent for their entire culture so you would have a black student who was in a classroom and some issue of like black consciousness would come up or ferguson or whatever else was going on at the time politically um so these students were expected to represent for their entire race. And so I felt a lot of that growing up, you know, as a Palestinian, as an Arab American, U.S. citizen, able to vote, but Muslim at the same time who went to the mosque and went to a private Muslim school. I felt like I needed to represent my entire race, which is that's a kinda, lot. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so I live in Lakeview, which is in the north side of Chicago. It's near where Wrigley Field is. It's a predominantly white neighborhood. And I remember the feeling of moving in. Um, so we have a park that is right behind our alleyway. Um, just a children's park, a playground where I take my son pretty regularly. And I remember the feeling first moving into the neighborhood and taking my son there and feeling like I was like our family stuck out like a sore thumb. And that was a weird feeling because we lived in New York City, which is 
ethnically diverse and right. we were in Queens for a little bit. So, you know, a lot of different types of people from all parts of the world. And then to be back in my hometown, but on a different side of the city, far away from where I grew up and taking my son to a park and feeling like, I don't know if I necessarily belong. That was a pretty weird feeling. We've since become very accustomed to it. Uh, my wife wears the scarf, so we go out a lot in the neighborhood, and she is a scarf-wearing Muslim woman mm -hmm. who could pass as some sort of Latina, but right. is still very much Muslim. Um, and you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that we get weird looks, but we definitely don't look like every other Lululemon-wearing person in the neighborhood. <laughs> I will say that much. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I just. My, my girlfriend, she's from Palestine, too. So, right. you know, I, we've had plenty of conversations where we're talking about what that's actually like um, as yeah. far as, like, representing uh, what, yeah. that, what that feels like yeah. as well in, in America, you know, what that looks like as yeah. well. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that's something that's frustrating for me when I hear about that. It's just like – and I'm, I'm Korean. I don't – you know, I grew up in, a, again, a predominantly white neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and I always wanted to fit in. But at the same I time, I wanted to, you know, represent myself too. Right. But to represent myself, I felt like I needed to be normal in a sense where they didn't think, oh, Koreans are weird. Yeah. But I did feel that whole weight of like, I'm representing a whole I, nation. I am holding an entire country, <laughs> yeah. however many million people on yeah. my shoulders. If I'm yeah. cheap, if I, if I tip like a dollar, then they're going to think That's all Koreans are cheap. Poorly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I think one of the benefits of growing up at a Palestinian a predominantly Palestinian community was the fact that I went to a Palestinian school. If you drove down, I mean, Harlem Avenue is a pretty famous street in the Chicagoland area. And if you go far south enough on Harlem Avenue, you hit around like, you know, 90th, 92nd Street, 87th Street, mm -hmm. 79th Street. You start seeing a lot of Arab businesses, a lot of Middle Eastern businesses. And that's kind of where I grew up. So I was able to drive down the street and see things, see names of businesses that represented different towns or villages in Palestine. And that kind of was an easy transition into the U.S. For someone who was raised in the U.S., but to be able to see their, where their homeland was, yeah. that was pretty cool. But I also understand that that's not always the case for a lot of new immigrants. Right. And kind of going back, though, I, I have to point this out because it's something I've been wanting to ask you. You went to the new school in New York, in New York City, and you were – Yep. Uh, you had an MFA in creative writing. Yep. But with a concentration in poetry. Yep. I've never heard of this in my life before. Yeah, yeah. Please explain. <laughs> yeah, so I went to UIC, um, the University of Illinois, Chicago, and it's, you know, a big public school. I started out as an art student doing graphic design. I figured – it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I spent a lot of my time um, in the alleyways um, in the west side of Chicago, just smoking weed and not doing any work. <laughs> yeah. And so I, at that point, decided I needed to make some sort of change in my life. And so I became an English student with intent to eventually go into law. That's what I thought oh. I would do. Okay. Um, at the time, I didn't realize how much I didn't trust the American criminal justice system. Yeah. Um, but I thought that that's what I actually wanted to do. So I went into English. 
um, which essentially means that I'm able to read and write pretty well. Yeah. Um, and uh, I decided that I had to, at least for UIC, I had to select a concentration within English. And so I took a couple creative writing classes and found that the ones I liked the most were the poetry classes. I didn't think I liked poetry. I rap a little bit and it kind of made sense. Um, so I went, I got a concentration in poetry for my English degree. And then in the future, when I decided to pursue grad school, that was the thing that I liked the most. So I went into a MFA in creative writing with a concentration in poetry because that's what I th figured I liked the most from undergrad. Yeah, and obviously my ears were burning when you talked about rap. Yeah. Right? So you rap. I rap. You have a, I rapped. So your rap Past game tense. has been since you were 14 years of age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first time I ever recorded a song with some pretty close friends was at the age of 14. Um, we were tapped by some local older dudes in our community who were making islamic friendly rap <laughs> for youth about how to be good people they were like hey we heard y'all rap and we were like yeah we kind of do and they were like yo let us hear you guys spit so we rapped some random shit to them so and it was like goody two shoes rap. it was goody like two shoes rap. rap yeah it was will smith rap but with an islamic twist what is this that Okay, you don't have to wrap it for me, but what is that? What, like, what, what does that mean? Of, what kind of lyrics is that? I mean, it was a lot about like being good people and like <laughs> following in the footsteps of the prophet and like all, all right. of this stuff, which at the time felt like it was kind. Of, I don't know. I, I mean, a lot of the la the rap music that I listened to growing up, um, you know, being in my early yeah, teens who's your in the U.S. Your it was a lot right? of like underground stuff. So. I listen to Pac, I listen to Big, I listen to Nas and Jay-Z and all of the people who you might recognize, but I also listen to a lot of really weird, quote-unquote, backpacker emo rap. A lot of underground dudes like Aesop Rock, Atmosphere, mm -hmm. MF Doom, a lot of these guys who at the time represented everything that I liked about music, which was this independence to do whatever the fuck you wanted yeah. and actually sound cool doing it and have this like interesting following. So that's kind of what I liked. I did that for a while, and then we got tapped by these dudes when we were pretty young, me and a few friends of mine, who were like, oh, yeah, you guys rap. You guys are pretty good. You know, we're trying to launch this, like, Islamic <laughs> rap group yeah. to perform at Islamic conventions in the Midwest. And okay. I was and like, where, where oh, did this shit. Go? So did you guys do it? <laughs> yeah, we did it. I mean, it was. What was your rap name? Uh. Funny enough, my first rap name ever was Foreign Threat. Oh, wait. Yeah, this was this was this was before 9/11. This was before 9/11. I changed it. You gotta be kidding me. This was my pre-9/11 name. Uh, it was Foreign Threat. So foreign with a ph. And then I realized after 9/11 that that wasn't a good rap name yeah. for a Middle Eastern Muslim yeah. dude to have, and so I changed my name. Eventually, my stage name became Ed Hooligan. Ed is in the, the the end of my name phonetically, Ahmed. Yeah. Ed, so E D, and then uh, second name Hooligan because I just thought it was a cool <laughs> fucking name. So I became Ed Hooligan. I short sort of shook off 
this like Islamic rap image and became just a dude who made music about anything that I was interested in. How long did you do the Islamic rap for? Maybe like a year and a half or okay, so. Okay, so not too long. No, not too long, but it was actually really fun. We went to different Islamic conferences and performed mm-hmm. during the entertainment night, which would usually be like a Saturday or a Sunday at the end of the How conference. How old are you again? 15, 16. Okay, so you are a teenager. I was young, okay. dude. I was, I was pretty young during that time, but then... I think I took a break unexpectedly just because I was dealing with life stuff and then I became a college student. But then at one point I realized that I really liked rap still and still found myself like asking people if they had beats or knew people who had beats and then writing music to beats and stuff and had friends who were producing and found myself still wanting to do it. So I kind of just fell back into rap. And where did that take you? Like where did you – you're no longer – a foreign threat. I moved to another country. So my friends continued to rap. As a matter of fact, I still have a friend, one friend from that era who still raps semi-professionally. As a matter of fact, shout out my friend KM. He is performing tonight in Chicago with Lupe Fiasco and Brother Ali, if you know who those people are. But obviously, you know who, hopefully, you know who Lupe Fiasco yeah. is. But Featuring... Featuring E. Hooligan. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> not really, but I hope to at least get a selfie with Lupe Fiasco because that's yeah. that was a fucking legend growing up. So so you have that, and then you're now you're in Dubai. I'm in Dubai in 2010. So I was in Dubai from 2010 until 2014. Um, the first six months sucked. I was there as a teacher, so just to <laughs> echo some of what my homie Britain said about going abroad to teach. That's what I did. That's what took me abroad. I didn't have any actual plans to ever leave the U.S. I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. I was considering moving to California for no fucking reason at all other than I wanted to do something with my life. And then, you know, here comes along this opportunity to travel and teach. So... I decided to take it. Uh, the first six months kind of sucked. Uh, moving abroad, not knowing anyone, sort of trying to become accustomed to this idea of being an English teacher in a foreign place, far away from my family. I was in a pretty serious relationship at the time. Living in Dubai, teaching, you know, making money, but not really liking what was happening there because I didn't really understand that there was any subculture there. You know, Dubai is a very interesting place. It's not old. It doesn't have any history. Right. It's um, all created. Yeah. It's all created in the past 20 years. And yeah. so it feels like a sprouted city. The way that I always described it to people who never been was that it feels like the set of like a superhero oh, movie. Okay, yeah. Where all the buildings feel like they're planted yeah. for the sake of the movie. Um, much like, you know, Studio City in L.A. or something. Right, right. That's kind of how Dubai feels all the time. Because it doesn't feel like it's been there. It doesn't – because it hasn't actually been there at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's not a place that has existed. It's not a place that has any history. There are maybe some parts of town that might trace back to the 1800s, you know, like old you know, like fishermen communities and stuff like that uh, by the port. But for the most part, the city is brand new. Everything is brand new. The buildings are 10, 15 years old max. And so I found myself in this completely new and foreign and kind of weird environment And, you know, a few months down the road, I decided to try martial arts. So I was doing uh, Thai kickboxing, Muay Thai. And while I was at this gym, I came across some people who rapped. 
surprisingly, who were involved in the hip-hop scene in the Middle East. And that kind of started this entire thing where I started connecting with people and becoming more involved in that. Is Ed Hooligan here today? I mean, Ed Hooligan is here always inside my soul. <laughs> Ed Hooligan is always here. Could Ed Hooligan give us a little taste? No, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, a maybe, taste. maybe a little bit later. Maybe a little bit later when I finish this coffee. Maybe. Who knows? All right, folks. It's that time again. Let's talk about Newber for the last time in this episode. Um, you know, it's the newest craze again for share writing. Uh, you guys know what it is. Um, but yeah, you know, just, I just want to be frank with you all. Um, there've been a lot of lawsuits, uh, for Nuber, um, just a lot of irresponsibility on their parts, letting a 82 year old new driver behind the wheel. Um, so yeah, just a ton of lawsuits and complaints. Um, so they're going to be taking a break, um, as our sponsor. Um, so this will be the last ad raid for them. Um, Newber, um, I guess hopefully they'll get their act together or, you know, so, um, they could sponsor us again. Um, also just want to put it out there. If you are looking to sponsor the show, um, just hit me up at the inside Joe at gmail.com. Now don't tell, don't ask me how I know this, uh -huh. how but, do you know you, this? but you had your most blissful time in Bali. Yeah, so Bali's great. Bali was actually the last trip that my wife and I took. So my wife is also a teacher, also an educator. I was in Dubai for two years by myself, saving up for our wedding and all of that. And then I came home, we got married, and she joined me out there. So she was in Dubai with me for three years. We actually taught in the same school system. Two of those years, we taught in the same school. So we, like, shared lunch and shit. We made enough money living in Dubai to take trips about three times a year on average. And the very last trip we took before we moved back to the U.S. was to Bali. And, you know, Bali is a really, really interesting place because on one hand, if you think about like Kuta Beach and all of these places that you hear about, it could be very touristy. It's a place where a lot of, you know, fucking Australian and New Zealander bros and U.K. bros <laughs> hang out on the beach and get really yeah. fucked up. But then other parts of the island, inland, like Ubud and like some of these other places are really blissful. And I just, you know, we spent like a week there. But just... what, what made it so blissful? I, I've, I've read this. I have did some research and it was the most it, blissful time of your life. It, It is just so goddamn beautiful. I mean, the best way that I can. I don't know. Have you ever been somewhere and thought about the colors of the place? No. No, you've never been to like a location and thought, God damn, these greens here look very beautiful. And I just gotta mention though, this is yeah. drug drug free. This is completely <laughs> drug free. I am drug free. So in <laughs> Bali as he's holding his like weed dispenser. It's not, dude. It's, this, is, this is a this is I have in my hand a fucking I'm completely drug free. A, a nicotine. I, I my only substance is nicotine and caffeine. But anyway, so my wife and I were in Bali. Um, tripping on acid, yeah. Not tripping on <laughs> We were completely drug-free in Bali. And, you know, Indonesia, the island of Bali is this, like, really interesting place where both tourism and traditional culture clash in a way that I've never seen anywhere else. Like, we've been everywhere in Europe. We've been, I've been to France twice, the Netherlands twice, Italy for 10 days. You know, all of these different places, Latin America, 
all throughout the Middle East, but the way that Bali captures visitors was something that I had never experienced before. I think how vibrant everything looked, you know, the temperature, how beautiful and tropical everything was. And maybe people who have been to like Thailand can relate, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. For me, that was the only time I've ever been to Asia and it was mind blowing. So like we did yoga in this like really cool, like open, like exposed yoga studio that was like a drop-in place that was on a cliff um, where the rainforest was to our left and the Indian Ocean was to our right. And you can hear fucking animals and waves at the same time. It was the craziest thing in the world. I had literally never experienced anything yeah. close to that, like, connection to Earth before. So, like, after you guys were done taking shrooms, <laughs> you mentioned this, too. I did some more research. Really digging here, man. So you really love the news. That's, like, your favorite TV show's news. Local news is my favorite thing in the world. Like, can you explain that? Like, why? You like, I don't know. like seeing something... people with murders and all this sad news? Yeah, I don't know. I think it started in New York. Um, I just found comfort in turning on something that I knew that other people in the local community were watching. Okay. Um, something about knowing, someone telling me what the weather is like, <laughs> what is the weather is going to be like for the next week. Yeah. Uh, something about, like, local elections and a school that had an issue. I don't know. It made me feel local news makes me feel connected to the community that I live in. Yeah. And so every night on the dot, 10 o'clock or nine o'clock, I turn on the news and I just watch some random people in suits telling me what happened that day and what the rest of the week is going to look like. And for some reason I find that super comforting. You're going to be like a super interesting old man. <laughs> You're going to be a really funny old man. Yeah, but like I also <laughs> like I also like like local channel shit like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. So and you're stuff. already there. I'm there. You're already I'm, an, old I'm man. an old man waiting to happen. <laughs> All right. So I think we're getting to the end of this episode. And everybody that's listening is like, when are we going to actually hear Ed Hooligan? When is it going to come out? Is it going to give us a little taste? My man Joe is going to play a song for you guys right now from my shit. Here we go. No regretful finesse. Yes, check, brain check. Now reporting. I get when child abortion is suppressed. The dawning of an anarchist, fast talking, overheaded brute, possessing physical potency of nukes. Absorbing the force that I'm gripping the energy which you fall short of your goal like you're missing a penalty kick when it's war. It's on like the light bulbs illuminating over my head when thoughts fall. That'll do it for today's episode of The Inside Joe. Uh, special thanks to Andre for the theme song and, of course, our guests, Britton and Ahmed. Uh, you can find Britton on Instagram at bshoddy and Ahmed at ed.hooligan. Um, I'll have both their handles in the description. Um, as always, if you like this episode, please subscribe and write a review. Until next time, gumbay. <laughs>